Well, if you would take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning in God's Word for most of the remainder of our time together in worship, Acts chapter 8, and we will read together the text beginning in verse 4 through verse 25. So we will not cover the entirety of this chapter. We'll save some of it for next Lord's Day, if the Lord wills. So Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, and we will read together through verse 25. When you arrive there, because this is the Word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, if you are able, would you please stand, ready to hear from the God who still speaks in His Word. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, Luke wrote as he was carried along by God's Spirit these words. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called. Great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, 
therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I am grateful that when I became a believer in Jesus Christ many years ago now, I was taught by older and wiser men of God what it meant to follow Jesus. And I've shared this from time to time. Uh, I want to embarrass someone who's in the room by calling him out. Actually, it just so happens now you're going to be really intrigued and curious. There's a brother in this room right now from Texas who was one of these men who taught me what it meant to follow Jesus Christ at a very early spiritual age. This process whereby one Christian helps another Christian follow Jesus is what we often call discipleship. That's all discipleship really is, one Christian helping another Christian follow Jesus Christ. On the other hand, however, and I thought about this even this previous week, on the other hand, there is an activity that I don't remember anyone having to tell me to do before I began doing it as a Christian. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I was discipled in this activity, but if my memory serves me at all, and it may not, but if my memory serves me, it seems to me that when I became a believer in Jesus Christ, this is one of the areas that simply began to change through the work of the Holy Spirit. The activity to which I am referring was sharing the gospel with others. It just started happening. I came to believe in Jesus Christ, and as a result, I started talking about Jesus. Now, this is less of a testimony about me and more of a testimony about what God was doing through a young man at the time by His grace. I started following Jesus Christ, and part of that meant sharing with family members, sharing with friends, sharing with classmates. At the time, I was toward the end of high school, so sharing with classmates, sharing with fellow football players and all the above, right? That Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm sure that if I could hear some of my gospel presentations now, I would be a bit concerned. (laughs) They weren't always accurate, doubtless, but they were authentic and genuine, And I wanted people to come to know the same Lord that I had come to know. I wanted people to experience the same washing with the water and the word that I had been washed with. I wanted people to know and treasure the greatest treasure of all, Jesus Christ. And so I began sharing it. As C.S. Lewis has observed, we speak about our greatest delights and enjoyments, friends. It's just what we do. Think about your your most desirable movie, and it's likely that you've shared that with somebody else. Or a book that you treasure, and and I would submit to you that you've shared with someone about that book. Or your hobby that every chance you get, you go do this hobby. Maybe it's golf, maybe it's another sport, maybe it is reading a book, and you often, doubtless, will share this with somebody else. Our greatest delights and enjoyments in this life, and there are many, we tend to talk about. We tend to share with others, as C.S. Lewis 
has mentioned to us in the past. And so in this sense, I was just sharing with others the source of my chief joy, Jesus Christ. But additionally, additionally, I want to point out that sharing the message of Jesus with others, and we see this in the book of Acts, was a consequence of being filled with the Spirit of God. We see this in the beginning of the book of Acts, and we'll continue to see it even this morning. When someone is filled with the Spirit of God, one of the chief symptoms of being filled with that Spirit is proclaiming the message about Jesus to other people. It's what Spirit-filled people do. They talk about Christ. And this is what we discover in Acts. This is what we discover even in our text this morning. But if we were to turn back in the book of Acts, I do want to point out a verse. You don't have to turn back if you don't want to. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a kind of thesis statement for the book of Acts. I'm not the first person who has observed this. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 serves as a kind of thesis statement. There Jesus speaks these words to his disciples. But you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what might this power look like? How does it manifest itself in the life of those or that person who has been filled with the Holy Spirit? He goes on to say, and you will be my what? Witnesses. There it is. You will be my witnesses. Notice in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Despicable Samaria. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. In Samaria and to the end of the earth. The book of Acts, in many respects, is the unfolding of this promise. God's people are filled with the Spirit of God in Jerusalem, Pentecost. And the consequence of being filled with the Spirit of God is declaring the gospel of Christ to others. And so Peter stands up, Acts chapter 2, and he proclaims the gospel. And people believe the gospel. And they're baptized into Christ. And then God continues to do a work to increase the church through spirit-filled believers who are declaring Christ. And now the gospel goes out to Judea, the broader region of Judea. And then the gospel goes out to Samaria, as we're going to see in our text this morning. And then, as we continue to read Acts chapter 10 and following, the gospel goes out to the end of the earth, the other nations of the world. That really is the story of the book of Acts. Well, last Lord's Day, last Lord's Day, we observed that a great persecution arose because of the testimony of a man, one of the first deacons, we find him in Acts chapter 6, a man named Stephen, who is filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom, we're told. And one of the symptoms of being filled with the Holy Spirit was what? He proclaimed the gospel in Acts chapter 7. So Stephen is filled with the Spirit, and he proclaims the gospel in Acts chapter 7. However, the Jewish leaders do not accept this gospel about Christ. Because, by the way, accepting this gospel is recognizing their need to be rescued. Accepting Jesus Christ meant for the Jewish leaders to recognize they had missed it. That they had predicated their life on something that was false. And they had killed 
the incarnate God who had come actually for the purpose of dying, being buried, and rising from the dead on the third day. So these Jewish leaders responded to that message that Stephen preached concerning Christ and their need to repent by doing what? Killing him. They took Stephen's life. We were just there, if you're with us. Lately, last Lord's Day, we were just there. And so Stephen's declaration of the gospel results in his death. And then something else happens. Now for this, look at chapter 8, verse 1. We're just building a little context for what's happening in our text. Chapter 8, verse 1 Right after Stephen's death, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. Don't miss this. They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And here it's happening. It's happening right here in the text. Through this persecution, God's people are scattered throughout Judea and into Samaria. And eventually, they'll be scattered throughout the rest of the world. And we're told there, however, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, except the apostles. The apostles stayed on at the church in Jerusalem, at least in these initial stages. And uh, they did so, doubtless, in order to continue to oversee the church, the mother church, the church in Jerusalem. But we're going to find them going to Samaria even in our text. Okay, that's a lot of background, a lot of introduction, but I think it brings us up to speed with what's happening in the book of Acts. And this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25, and see how the gospel now extends beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and beyond the boundaries of Judea into a place called Samaria. And we're going to do this by asking and answering three questions. I know that surprises you. If you attend First Baptist Powell, it's unconventional for us to ask three questions, isn't it? I say it tongue in cheek. If you're visiting with us, I love triads, and so I just see them everywhere, perhaps when I'm unjustified from time to time. But I think it's helpful. Here are three questions we're going to ask and answer this morning. First, if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. What did the persecuted and scattered Christians do? What did these Christians do when they were scattered? What did they go about doing? Now, you know the answer to the question already. We just read the text. I even said it, but we're going to unpack it just a little bit, okay? What did these Christians do? Secondly, where did they do it? You already know the answer to this question, I suspect. But we're going to unpack the significance of that place. Where did they do it? And then what is the significance of that? That's a little sub-question for you. And then the third primary question we're going to ask and answer this morning is how did others respond? How did others respond? What did the scattered and persecuted Christians do? Where did they do it? And how did others respond? We're going to find two different responses in the text. And they look similar to one another. There are some subtle differences, and we'll unpack those together in a few moments. Younger worshipers, there is something I want you to pay close attention to, a couple of items in the text, okay? So our younger worshipers who are in this room with us, we want them in the text. Parents, encourage them to look for these things. Here they are, a couple things. First, who preached the gospel in Samaria? Now, I've just given you the answer to our bigger question number two. But who was it that preached the gospel in Samaria? 
there's just a particular person I want you to know. I want you to know his name. Who was he? And then younger worshipers, something else I want you to look for as we move through this text. There is a man in the text named Simon. Okay, a man named Simon. How does Simon sin against God? What does he do wrong? I want you to think through this as we're working through the text, all right? Younger worshiper, what did Simon do that was so wrong? All right, well, those are a couple of questions for our younger worshipers. Let's return to our broader questions, the outline. And the first question was this, what did the scattered Christians do? Look with me at chapter 8, verse 4. These will be somewhat brief, I think. Chapter 8, verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about doing what? Preaching the word. There's our answer. What did the scattered Christians do? They preached the word. And by the way, a little warning here, we oftentimes uh, circumscribe or limit preaching to the activity that the pastor does on a Sunday morning as he stands in the pulpit. And it is indeed a form of preaching, but here the language that's used is not necessarily what's happening when the pastor stands up and declares the message of the gospel through the word of God to the people of God. Rather, it's the people of God going out and declaring that same message to others. And we've said this time and time again, we're going to continue to say it throughout the book of Acts, really the role of the preacher on Sunday morning, my role, fundamentally, is to proclaim the gospel to you through all of Scripture, faithfully, I hope, energized by the Spirit of God, so that you then embrace that gospel and take that same gospel outside of these walls and proclaim the gospel to others. That's what's happening in the text. So what did these scattered and persecuted Christians do? They went about preaching the word. Now, there's a, there is a word that's used. I mentioned it to you. There's a word that's used a couple of times in the text. It's, it's used in verse 4, and it's used again in verse 25. Uh, if you like literature and you like, you like various instruments, literary instruments that are used for emphasis, this is what is called an inclusio. It's like uh, a bookend. And that word is euangelizo. Now, I only mention that word to you because it sounds a lot like euangelizo is, is the word from which we get our words like evangelism or evangelist or to evangelize. And so that's the word that is used in verse 4. That's the word that is used at the conclusion of our text, verse 25. That's the emphasis of the text. God's people going out and evangelizing, preaching the good news about Jesus Christ. Friends, following Jesus is more than sharing the gospel, but it's never less than sharing the gospel. It's never less than sharing the gospel about Jesus with others. To believe in Christ is to share the message about Christ. And so we read of passages like this. Psalm chapter 107 verse 2 says this, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. In other words, let the redeemed of the Lord speak up whom he has delivered from trouble. We mentioned this verse a few moments ago. It was in our liturgy. During our time of confession, I believe it was, Pastor Brett, 
But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul is quoting a psalm, and he writes these words, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. You hear that? I believed and so I spoke. Paul says, we also believe and so we also speak. What is he saying here? A number of things, but genuine faith in Christ results in speaking about Christ to others. It's one of the manifestations of trusting in Jesus Christ. So we come to treasure Christ and trust in Christ, and then we go and we share Christ with other people. That's one of the reasons why as a young follower of Jesus Christ, oftentimes in a way that was less effective than at other times, maybe even less faithful than at other times. It was my desire when I came to know the Lord Jesus at an early age to go and tell other people about this glorious gospel. How about you, church family? How about you? Are you declaring this gospel to others? I mean, do you gather here on a Lord's Day morning to hear me declare the gospel only then to sit on it? Or... Are you refreshed by the gospel and empowered by the Spirit of God? And then you go out and with some amount of trepidation, but with the boldness of the Spirit, trusting God to use a broken and fragile vessel, do you share the gospel with other people? That's your calling. We spend a whole host of time, in fact, books have been written on how we discover God's will for our lives, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the amount of energy we put into discovering the secret will of God when we refuse to obey the revealed will of God. Trust in Christ. Go proclaim Christ. Share him with your family members. Probably the most difficult group of people with whom to share Jesus, right? Isn't it true? I have some stories, as I'm sure some of you do. When I came to know the Lord... And zealously, right, came to, know, came, came to know Jesus, and I thought, well, all right, I'm going to take the gospel to family. And there's going to be a revival. <laughs> Hundreds of baptisms, cousins and second cousins and 14th cousins, if there is such a thing, right? All of this family reunion will be a Christian reunion. And I was zealous uh, and a bit naive trusting in the power of God, and, and, and I found that it's challenging to share the gospel with family members for a number of reasons, by the way, not the least of which is they know us. They know us. May I suggest to you that one of the most effective ways of doing it is just recognizing that they know you. Just recognize that they know you. And recognize that your brokenness demonstrates your need for Christ. Yes, Yes, I have failed, but I, in God's mercy, I have found a Savior who succeeded for me. And I would like for you to experience that same Savior who died in your place and for your sins, who was raised from the dead on the third day. And then trust the Lord to do the work. We proclaim Christ. We do not convert people. It must be the Spirit of God who converts. And we leave it in His hands. But we can even take it a step back from there and ask this question, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you believing in Christ this morning? Have you come to know the Christ that, that the brothers and sisters in Acts 8 are proclaiming? 
Have you come to know the Christ that Philip in the text preaches throughout Samaria, that the apostles are preaching throughout Jerusalem and Judea? Have you come to believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and the only sufficient Savior is the one who has died in your place, who offers you his obedience, who was raised from the dead on the third day, and who promises someday to come back and make all things new? Trust in Christ. Surrender to Christ this morning. If you'd like to talk more about that, perhaps you have questions about what it means to trust in Jesus. Perhaps you have questions about Jesus himself. There's nothing we prefer to talk about more here than the Savior. Perhaps you have protests. We'd like to hear those too. We believe he's sufficient to handle all of it. Would you gather with us after the service, just to the left out there? I mentioned this room to you earlier. As you walk out of one of these double doors, take a left. On the right-hand side, there is a room called Crossroads. Go in there. We'll have an elder there who would love to visit with you and pray with you and perhaps even come alongside of you and you alongside of him as we learn to serve and treasure Jesus Christ. So these scattered Christians in the text, they went about sharing the gospel with other people. Okay, pretty elementary, really is. Second, where do they do this? Now, you can answer this by now, right? Where do they do it? Not a rhetorical question. You can do it. Just shout it out. Samaria. They did it in Samaria, right? Look with me at chapter 8, verse 5. Philip... Notice that, younger worshipers, Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Also, notice the conclusion of our text, verse 25. We're not going to be able to look at every detail of the text, but notice, notice the conclusion of the text. Now, when they had testified, this is the apostles, by the way, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Philip preached the gospel in Samaria. Then the apostles come down, as we're going to see in just a moment. And then when they return to Jerusalem, they actually go through some other villages and they preach the gospel to the Samaritans. Philip, by the way, this is a bit of an aside, but we need to mention this because he's the one in the text preaching Christ in Samaria. Uh, Philip was one of the first deacons. We were introduced to him back in Acts chapter 6 with Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. That wasn't unique to Stephen. It was used to describe Stephen because Stephen's about to preach the gospel in Acts 7. But now we're to understand it was true of all the others too. Because what are they doing? They're preaching the gospel with boldness. So Philip, one of the first deacons, is preaching Christ, by the way, after he knows it got Stephen killed. What might gospel ministry cost us? Everything? And yet, what do we receive in Christ? Infinitely more than everything? We could say it that way. Christ and all of his blessings, an eternal life to boot, in a resurrected body, all things restored. Right? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, as someone wiser than I have spoken before. And so it is with Philip as he's preaching Christ throughout Samaria. Now, what is the significance of Samaria? We'll try to summarize this somewhat briefly. 
The Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. They were utterly hated and despised by the Jews. And by the way, they returned the favor. According to the Jews, the Samaritans were half-breeds, an ethnic mixture of the northern tribes of Israel and pagans, in part perhaps even the Assyrians. So the Samaritans were despicable in the eyes of the Jews. Moreover, the Samaritans did not accept the authority of all of the books of the Old Testament that we call the Old Testament. They only accepted the first five books often referred to as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they dismissed all the others for a number of reasons, not the least of which is they rejected the temple in Jerusalem. So they set up their own temple eventually, and prior to this text, they set up their own temple in a place called Mount, on a place called Mount Gerizim. And it was a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem, you see? So they had a rival temple, a kind of rival Old Testament, a rival religion. They argued the Jews had gone astray. The Jews argued they had gone astray. They hated one another. Absolutely hated one another. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you may remember John chapter 4, where Jesus passes through Samaria. It's interesting, John says he, it was necessary that he go through Samaria, perhaps because of divine appointment. Some argue, no, it's just geographical. I think it's more than that. He passes through the region of Samaria in his ministry, and he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman who is drawing water out of a well, Jacob's well. And Jesus requested a drink from the woman who was drawing water from the well. And here's what the woman says to Jesus. John chapter 4, verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? see? It's a great question. In other words, you hate me and I hate you. Why would you have the audacity to ask me for a drink? John then goes on to explain, this is probably not the woman talking, John says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In case you're reading this and you don't know about this, John says, Jews hate Samaritans. And the woman went on to respond to Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 20, as they have this conversation, and we're skipping a bit, and uh, this woman says to Jesus, our fathers, that is the Samaritans, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, in Samaria. By the way, in Deuteronomy, we won't turn there, but God's word says our fathers worshiped on this mountain right? But you say, Jew, that's what she's saying here. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In other words, by implication, we're following God's word, you're not. You can see some of the tension here between the Jews and the Samaritans. Do you recall how Jesus responded to her? Here's what he said. Woman, by the way, that's not pejorative as it would be today. Um, well, men, I don't encourage you to say that. Don't, yeah, doesn't work in English. Don't claim to be following Jesus by referring to your wife as woman. Um, 
It works in this context, in this language. Anyway, topic for another day. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now get this. This this is the backdrop for Acts chapter 8. An hour is coming, a time, when you won't worship the Father exclusively or even fundamentally on Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. And then he says, in fact, the hour has already come. And then he says this, an hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And then he goes on to say, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What is he saying? A lot of things. And not the least of which is this. By the way, I do think it's worship the Father in the spirit. It's a fulfillment of God's promise throughout the Old Testament, including Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37. A time is coming, Jesus is saying, and is now here because, of course, the Messiah has come when the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people and there will be no more need for a temple building. That's the point. And what we found actually in the last few chapters of Acts is what? This debate that happens between Stephen and the Jewish leaders. We've gone back now a chapter. So this is Acts chapter 7. Stephen is debating the Jewish leaders about what? The temple. They are saying, Stephen, you're rejecting the temple. Stephen says, no, I'm embracing the fulfillment of the temple, Jesus Christ. And Stephen is described a couple of times in this section as filled with with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. And he's able to do so in the temple and outside of the temple. That's what's happening. And that's why this is so significant. To come full circle, the proclamation of the gospel in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 is the fulfillment of what Christ promised in John chapter 4. A change is happening in the church. What began as a predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem, the mother church, is now going to include despicable Samaritans. God is breaking down these dividing walls between ethnic groups. On the basis of what? On the basis of the gospel. That's what the church will have in common. It will be the gospel. In fact, it's going to be the kind of group that you never put together in the world. The world can't put this group of diverse and different peoples in the same room, singing the same songs, worshiping the same God, unless, of course, it's by means of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the church in the book of Acts. And so we're seeing that already in Acts chapter 8 take place. And this does culminate, by the way, I mean, we're so far off, we might as well go a little further. I said we would finish. We'll see. This culminates in Revelation chapter 7. 
You don't have to turn there, but you can. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, John, as he's caught up in the Spirit, he wrote this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and notice before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the church. That's the church. And it's already happening in Acts chapter 8. It's also why, church family, it's why we go. It's why we get on a plane. It's why we go to our neighbors. We ourselves are beneficiaries of this gospel. Why would we not take it to all the nations, to all the tribes, and to all the languages for the glory of Jesus Christ? We've answered two of our questions. And the third question really is a big one. And we're going to try to answer it. All right? We're going to go for it. Two of our questions. The first question we answered was, what did the persecuted and scattered Christians do? Very simply, they shared the gospel. Where did they do it? In Samaria. Despicable Samaria. And the gospel bore fruit. So third, let's look at how others responded. How did others respond? And there are ultimately two kinds of responses in the text, okay? And we're just going to point out some of these characteristics. Two responses in the text, both of them appear initially to be genuine faith. Both of them initially appear to be the response of faith. In fact, Luke will call it faith. Let me suggest to you that things are not always the way they appear. I think, I think Luke is warning us against a kind of pseudo-faith. By the way, John does this as well, John chapter 6. Another text for another day. So here's the first response. The first response is the response of the Samaritans as a whole, generally speaking. So the gospel goes to the Samaritans through Philip and through others, and uh, there's this broad response of trusting in Jesus and being baptized. By the way, that order is very clear in the text. They trust in Jesus and they're baptized. Verses 6 through 8, look at that text with me if you would, those few verses. Acts chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. So they're paying close attention. When they heard him and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, glance down at verse 12. But when they believed Philip, again, these Samaritans broadly, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women, by the way. In the church, there is, there is neither Jew nor Samaritan. There is neither male nor female. All are one in Christ. We are co-heirs, and we see this in the text. So the people of Samaria paid close attention to the message that Philip is preaching concerning Jesus Christ. 
And then they were baptized. Notice that Luke informs us that Philip also performed various signs in addition to bearing testimony to Christ. So he was performing exorcisms. Demons are coming out. Unclean spirits are coming out of people, crying out with a loud voice. There are physical healings that are taking place. And and these are often called signs in Acts. Why? Because they point to a greater reality. By the way, there's a warning here, and we're going to see it with a man named Simon. There's a warning in this text, as there, by the way, is a warning throughout the Gospel of John, of focusing on the sign and not focusing on the one signified in the sign. Of staring at the sign and missing the reality, the thing it bears testimony, or the person to whom it bears testimony. And we find that even right here in the text. But what is clear, what is clear is that these signs, these exorcisms, and and these healings validated the message of the gospel. The Samaritans saw the signs and trusted in Jesus. But again, don't miss this. The signs led them to whom? Christ. Christ was the end. Sign was just a means. When that gets inverted, there's a problem. When Christ becomes the means and something else becomes the end, it's inauthentic faith. But here, the Samaritans are trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, before we look at the second response to the gospel, I need to say this to you because if I don't, I'm going to get some emails with this question. Not a great question, by the way. I generally get good emails. Um, and, and the question surfaces in verses 14 through 17. Something unusual happens. Look at the text with me. And we're going to do an injustice. I'm going to summarize it quickly. And we're going to move on. Uh, it's a complicated issue. And there are brothers and sisters on a different side of this than I am this morning. And I respect them. I hope they respect me, but I disagree with them. And um, I'm going to share with you what I think about this particular text. Verses 17 through, I'm sorry, 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, okay, that's the emphasis. Jewish apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans received the word, we got to go see this. Okay? When this happened, they sent Peter and John. By the way, John is the one who in Luke 9, along with James, wants to call down fire from heaven to kill the Samaritans. God says, I pick you to go. How about that? Jonah, go to the Ninevites. That's what's happening here. Verse 15, so these apostles, Peter and John came down and prayed for them, that is the Samaritans who believe the gospel, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. This is where it gets a little abnormal or atypical. Verse 16, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. By the way, I think one of the reasons why this text points this out, along with one other text, and we'll get there about Acts 19, is because it's unconventional. 
Luke points it out and highlights it because it's unconventional to have believers in Jesus Christ, at least throughout church history, and even in the early church, who trust in Jesus, who have not received the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've all been baptized in the Spirit. So what gives? Here you have believers who trust in Jesus Christ, right? They don't have the Holy Spirit. And Luke camps out on this for just a moment. Verse 16, he had not yet fallen on any of them. I think I just read this, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Solution. Um, and I, and I, I will say this. There are brothers and sisters who are part of a stream in Christianity. It's oftentimes referred to as the second blessing stream. Um, some of our Wesleyan brothers and sisters, you know, um, they, they believe in a kind of second blessing, and they use texts like this. You can be a believer and not have the Holy Spirit. And there's a second blessing you receive. For some, actually, it's a third blessing. A second or third blessing you receive where the Spirit of God actually comes into you and empowers you, and, and um, you, get a, you get a kind of spiritual promotion. Um, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean in a positive sense. Also, you, you may be familiar with Keswick theology. It's spelled Keswick. It's not pronounced that way, Keswick theology. Um, And then Pentecostalism as well. Pentecostalism camps out passages like this as normative for believers in Jesus Christ. And with respect to my brothers and sisters, some of whom may be in this room, with respect to you, if you hold to this view, I do not hold to this view, namely that this is a normal occurrence. I take it this is an exception to the rule. This is a season of transition And let me explain to you why I think this happens. What's going on in the text? This is a kind of Samaritan Pentecost. I shared a moment ago this divide between Jews and Samaritans. Acts chapter 2, what happens? The Spirit descends on the church at Pentecost. But the church at that time is comprised of what kind of person? Jews. This will not be fundamentally a Jewish movement. It will be multi-ethnic, multinational. And so, when the Samaritans accept the word of God, the Jewish church needs very clear evidence that this is indeed what's happening. That God has given his favor to all who trust in Jesus Christ, including these despicable Samaritans. And additionally, let me suggest this. God is preventing a divide in the church. You had Mount Gerizim, the Samaritan temple, and the Samaritan religion. And you had Jerusalem, the Jewish temple, and the Jewish religion. And God doesn't want there to be the Samaritan church. See? And the Jewish church. So he calls his apostles to go down to Samaria and to lay their hands on these young believers in Jesus Christ to demonstrate the unity of the body of Christ. There is one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I want to submit to you that's what's happening in Acts 8. 
That's why you get a kind of Samaritan Pentecost. Okay. There is a second response I want to point out to you. If you have more questions about that, you're welcome to come to me. Um, These are challenging texts, some of them. And uh, hopefully we handle those challenges with generosity and with truth. But there's a second response in the text in addition to the Samaritans generally who trust in Jesus. And this second response is found by a man named Simon or in a man named Simon. Simon was a wonder worker, a magician, and he had garnered tremendous influence among the Samaritans. Initially, it appears that Simon believed the gospel. Do you see that? Look with me at verse 13. We are going to begin wrapping up with Simon. We'll get you out of here at least by 3 p.m., okay? Look with me at verse 13. I'm kidding. If you're visiting, I am joking. So stick around a little bit longer. Verse 13, even Simon himself, what? Believed. And after being baptized, he appears to believe, he's baptized, and then for a period of time, notice he continued with Philip. Join the church. He's with God's people. But then Luke adds something that should cause us interest. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And and by the way, look back at chapter 8, verse 9. The first word in the English Standard Version, it may not be in the one you're holding if you're not holding the English Standard Version, is the word what? Now or but. There's a bit of a transition happening here. There was a man named Simon. And this man is seeing signs and great miracles performed, and he's amazed by them. Now, don't miss this. Samaritans, the Samaritans saw the signs, and they got to Jesus. Simon got to Jesus and then was amazed at the signs. That's his focus. At least it appears. Now, this is confirmed by verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. (laughs) Verse 19, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon doesn't appear to have changed at all. He was a magician. Now Jesus becomes a means for practicing magic. And he's willing to try to buy this spiritual power. Which, by the way, actually receives a name throughout church history. When you try to purchase a spiritual office or a spiritual privilege, it's called simony. How about that? Your name actually becomes the namesake for a particular sin throughout church history. So it is with Simon here, he tries to buy the spiritual privilege and the spiritual authority. In fact, early church authors, a few of them actually, say that Simon goes on to begin heretical movements. Luke is somewhat silent on what ends up happening in the end, but he doesn't leave us a lot of reason to hope for Simon. And the early church bears testimony that Simon goes on to start a number of movements that become the Gnostics. And they all were produced in large part through the influence of this man named Simon. And then Peter indicates, verses 20 to 21, he indicates actually that Simon's faith is false. 
It's fallacious. He even says this, you have no part or lot in the matter. That's the language of inheritance. You have no inheritance in the gospel. That's strong language. He has no part in Christ and no part in the gospel, and there's no indication that he repents of his sin. In fact, as I mentioned a moment ago, the early church bears testimony that he doesn't. So, let's do this. In light of this, the second response, in contrast to the first response, these two responses to the gospel serve as an exhortation to us this morning. And if I might add a warning, there's a warning in the text. Am I genuinely trusting Jesus? Have I come to Jesus Christ as the end? Is he my sufficiency, my treasure, my inheritance? Or is he a means to an end? Have I come to Christ simply because through Jesus I can repair my marriage? But what if your marriage isn't repaired? Then what of Jesus? Have I come to Christ because through Jesus I can receive obedient children? What if, what if you have children that go astray? Then what of Jesus? Have I come to Jesus Christ seeking prestige or status spiritually? What if coming to Christ causes a kind of bankruptcy with regard to status? Then what of Jesus? For some of us, have I sought pastoral ministry? Because, after all, it's revered in the church. What if God mercifully removes pastoral ministry? Then what of Jesus? Dear friends, I think we are all, to one degree or another, tempted to treat Jesus as a means to an end. And that's precisely and fundamentally how Simon the magician responded to the preaching of the gospel. And what is so terrifying about this is if you had been there when the gospel was being preached in Acts chapter 8, you would have described it in this way. Simon got saved. And then we would have gathered together and baptized Simon. And we would have rejoiced, and rightfully so, because Simon got saved. And then through baptism, we would have welcomed him in the church and applauded because, after all, Simon got saved. And then months or years or decades pass. And Simon is no more in the church. Simon saw Jesus as a means to an end. And Jesus did not provide the end for Simon. Brothers and sisters, let me submit to you that there is a danger 
There is a danger in so emphasizing that someone got saved without simultaneously recognizing that saving faith endures to the end. And so it is for us this morning to evaluate ourselves. Is Jesus Christ a means to the end for me? Or is he the treasure? And the answer for all of us, I submit to you, is really simply this. Repent. I need repentance daily, O Christ, because I see you so often as a means and not as the end. Our inheritance is Christ, church family. That's what the text teaches us. Our treasure is Christ. Our joy is Christ. Our wealth is Christ. Our boast is Christ. He is everything. Absolutely everything. And this reality has been wonderfully communicated in the old Irish hymn, and we will conclude with this. Be thou my vision. Consider these words, church family, and meditate on them because you believe them, and if you're like me, because you want to believe them more than you do. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Notice, thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. And then I'll skip forward just a little bit. Riches, I heed not, nor vain, empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Let's pray together. Father, that is our prayer. Forgive us. Forgive me. For in some respects, exercising the faith of Simon. Thank you for the cleansing work of your son this morning, who is not a means to any end, who is our greatest end, our greatest treasure. Grant to me, grant to my brothers and sisters here at First Baptist Powell to rest in and find supreme satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. We pray this in his name together. Amen.